0: Hey Rockheads, if you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming, it's also great for kids doing homework, it's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves, I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com, that's mtcb.pwop. Dot
1: Dot net rocks episode eleven hundred sixty six with guest Chris Klug. Recorded Friday, June twenty sixth, two thousand fifteen.
0: Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're here in our our post-NDC show. And uh, how's it going, my friend?
1: I've got nothing to complain about, man. It's
0: crazy times, lots of
1: work, uh, but doing some good stuff uh, with Humanitarian Toolbox, actually. Very cool. <clears throat> yeah, we have a bunch of projects going on right now, including one working with a whole Microsoft team. So Microsoft team volunteered a week, 17 people to work on a project with the Red Cross. Wow, great. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be uh, – this is recorded before that work is done, but it'll be published after that work is done. But I'm sure we'll be able to do a whole show on it yeah. when we actually have all the bits in front of us and can talk about what happened.
0: And if you want to get involved, again, that's htbox.org. Uh, it's, a, it's a great way to uh, help the world be a better place with your skills. So, uh, I came home from NDC a day early because yes. – I had to play with the band uh, in front of 25,000 people at this amazing outdoor uh, summer pops festival. Awesome. How'd it go? Oh, it rained. (laughs) (laughs) That is the problem with outdoor
1: festivals, isn't it? We
0: started with a 30-minute set, and then it got bumped down to an 18-minute set. And then by the time we took the stage, it was supposed to have let up, and it just started raining again, so we only got to play a couple of songs. But uh, the people that were there really enjoyed it. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, it was fun. (laughs) All right. Well, enough about that. We got uh, some stuff to do here, namely Better Know Framework. All right, buddy. What do you got? Well, I don't know if you remember Spark. Spark was a sort of an IoT website that had a lot of very cool kits and projects and things. Yeah, well they've sort of rebranded themselves. Now they're the Particle Particle Store. So if you go to store.particle.io and I guess it's https store.particle.io. That's becoming the new way, right? Everything yep. is https now. Which is a good thing. Yep. Um these guys have interesting kits and they're cheap. So their Wi-Fi kit is $19. Wow, that is inexpensive. Photon. Yeah. Um they're uh they have another cellular development kit for 39 bucks and that's got a cell phone in it holy cow does it take a sim yeah i believe it does i believe it even comes with a sort of a package yeah so and these these aren't shipping yet they're going to ship later right uh the the cell one is going to ship electron it's called is going to ship in november oh wow and it includes data charges that's amazing it's pretty interesting isn't it yeah and then they have the internet button, which is neat. I've always wanted an internet button. This isn't quite <laughs> as simple as the internet button that I want. I want, like, the Staples Easy button. Right. Foom. You know, and then it sends a signal. That's what I want. Um, but this is a $49 button with LEDs on it. It's actually got four buttons in one package, but it is kind of neat. Awesome. This is some great hardware out there. People are really getting innovative. They also have a solar kit. So this... It's for the Electron. It's a combination solar panel and battery backup, and that's 179 bucks. I love the scale
1: difference between the solar panel and the device you're running. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's pretty, pretty massive. Yeah. And they have a whole bunch of other things, too, and antennas and good stuff. So I'm yeah. looking forward to getting into some of these things. Wow. Prices are coming down, too. Nice prices find, dude. Prices are coming down. And uh so there you go. Store.particle.io. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard?
1: Grabbed a comment off a of show. Ten ninety-four, the one we did with Uncle Bob when we talked about sort of beyond craftsmanship. That was that was a whole conversation about all the new people coming into the business and you know that the ratios were so challenging to actually provide support, which spawned a massive conversation right. in in there, one of the largest we've ever had, and so uh, so hard to pick and choose. There's so many good points here, and but Dave Camp said, "I do love listening to this show and agree with the overall principles of software craftsmanship, but I feel there's something missing from the discussion around this." The value of software, and by value, I mean the work that it performs i 'm mm-hmm. a fifteen year veteran and I know how to produce good software and I know that increasing reliability of the codes helps other people be more productive too. A good test strategy with automated tests, integration tests, and functional tests, and some manual testing in there, just to sure it feel right you know and I know UI experts uh, need uh, to be involved because i 'm not one, yeah, and I know I need an architect to actually make the software be well designed, be able to handle load. And I know I need to set up a proper deployment pipeline so that I can deploy reliably. I know I need to have sufficient logging so I can debug issues in production. And I really should get someone else to review my code. And I should be reviewing other codes so that we can understand what's going on. You know, pair program one way, but one way they have to do some code reviews. Right. The problem is, if this app's absolutely going to be used by one person, why am I doing all this? Mm. You know, not all software is created equal. If That's I look true. at the list of things I had to do there, you know, we could spend a month just
0: building a three-screen app, and I could have done that by myself in a day. Yep. And there are plenty of horror stories about companies who have over-architected things that it should be very simple. That's true. Yep. You have to sort of have an idea of how much change is going to happen or if change is going to happen and uh, how big these systems are and how, you know, widespread they are. Absolutely. And, and
1: I think it's a big factor when you talk about, but you know, good craftsmanship one way or the other is about thinking through the right software for the right person. Sure. So I don't think it avoids craftsmanship. It's just this presumption. As soon as craftsmanship is dogma, you know, thou shalt test and go through all these different rituals and so forth. And it's for one person, you know, that's not good craftsmanship either. Mm. So, David, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, definitely, we plug into your ideas. I'd love to send you a .NET Rocks mug. So, it's on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on the social medias. We've got uh, shows
0: posted on Google+. We've got them posted on Facebook. Yep. Comment there. We'll read it. We'll send you a mug. And if you want to tweet us, I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And uh, our ears are always on. And that brings us to our guest today. Chris Klug is an adrenaline-loving software developer from Sweden. He started coding professionally at the age of 20 as a way to pay his bills until he could get into school he wanted and then became an art director. Fifteen years later, he's still coding and is even traveling around the world talking about software development. There are still other plans for his life when he grows up, but it isn't art director stuff anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Chris. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. great picture by the way
2: Uh, thank you it's a bit different i know
0: uh it's definitely different but uh, i guess your personality comes through in that loud and clear Um, yeah
2: yeah, potentially yeah
0: yeah so uh bob martin solid i guess uh michael feathers coined that uh solid acronym to name the first five principles that uh uncle bob laid out for us yeah Tell us, uh, tell us about your experience with Solid. Mean, I mean, first of all, we'll go through the principles and everything and, and what your thoughts are on all of it. But um, first of all, what did you think about the comment and Richard's response to it?
2: I, I actually like the response. I, I hear a lot about the software craftsmanship and all of that. And I'm going to get flamed now. I, I know it. But I think some people should get off their high horse- horses. <laughs> I actually... I actually believe that shipping software is a, a feature too, and something that we should be doing. And yeah. we, we software craftsmanship people tend to talk about these massive things and all the hoops you have to go through and all of that. And then it takes ages to do something. And yes, if you're just building a simple app, then I don't think you need all of that. I think it's a, a sliding scale of how far you need to take. Stuff, and I'm not sure that going all that way all the time is the right way to do it. Now, if you're building
0: something that is going to last for centuries and it's going to be the core application of, a, of an enterprise and you've got hundreds of people working on it, by all means, I think that the 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 further you can break things down into small pieces and not violate these principles, the better off you're going to be when changes need to be made. And I think that's really what solid is all about, isn't it? It's sort of um, uh, future proofing as what, you know, trying to limit change to the smallest piece of the puzzle as possible, right?
2: Yeah, pretty much. Which is also why when you look at it and you you come back to what I just said, it's, it's something I have on a sliding scale as well. Because when we talk about all these softwares that will live on for centuries and will they all have they, all of this change and all that, I don't. Mm. I, I must admit, I've been involved in quite a few projects where the client has said that this is going to be the new thing, we're going to use this for everything, and this is going to run our business. Yeah. And six months later, they scrapped the whole project because it didn't work even in those cases, I might actually be a bit more pragmatic in the beginning and get stuff out there to the client and get them to work with it and see that it actually works. And I do believe that you can actually introduce a lot of the solid stuff sort of further down the line if needed.
0: Okay. Such as when a change needs to be made.
2: Yeah. That's, yeah. If, if you see that you end up changing certain things a lot and you or you see that – you have actual proof that there will be change then you can introduce it then you can start splitting things into smaller pieces but once again i'm i'm pretty pragmatic to the way that i do it
0: all right well let's uh should we should we go through them and get your take on them yeah sure all right start with srp single responsibility principle
2: it's probably the most important one in my mind um it's the one that Everyone, to be perfectly honest, most of these principles are on everybody in the back of everybody's mind. You you get used to them, even if you don't study the solid principles. If you just work long enough with software development, you're going to figure it out a lot. And the the single responsibility of basically just saying that there should be only one reason for a class to change, one requirement that can change and and thus cause change to a class, it, it. makes sense. It means that you get smaller pieces of code and it's easier to maintain. And if something changes, if a requirement changes, it's really easy to figure out what needs to change in the software. So it's definitely one of the most important principles in there, I believe.
0: And the idea is that every class should have just a single responsibility. And so, you know, if you think of a class that has, oh, I don't know, three, two or three methods on it, that uh violates the principle, you know, public methods, that sort of violates the principle itself. So rather than have a single class, you take all of those individual um responsibilities or, or methods, if you will, and you make interfaces out of them. And then you're able to just simply change one of them without changing everything. Is that pretty much a good summary?
2: Yeah, it is. It, I guess it, it kind of takes it a bit further than the S, though. Because mm-hmm. the S doesn't actually tell you that you need to have the interfaces and composition, all of that. I think that kind of inter- is introduced a little bit later on in my yeah, mind.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, but yes, it does mean breaking it down and making sure that you get as small units as possible or reasonably small units for for uh, taking care of change.
1: Should we set this more in the context of just talking C sharp? Like, what does this look like from a coding perspective?
2: Um. And from a coding's perspective, so I, I only do C sharp, so it's pretty much the only thing I know, except for JavaScript. Well, then I made a good um, choice. <laughs> yeah, um, it it just looks like anything else. You can't really look at a class and say that oh, this is this is single responsibility or this is solid. It's actually easier to figure out that a class is not single responsibility because you right. start looking at it and it you start seeing that it, it's talking to a database and it's talking to some web service and it makes changes to the to it does formatting and it does validation and it it does all of these extra things and you you sort of see that any any little change and you have to go in and that change that class all the time so it's easier to see where you're breaking the single responsibility than to actually know that you are a single responsible because even if you make a class sort of very small and just does one thing you could still take it too far and actually end up breaking it into two smaller pieces and then have two different classes you need to fix just because you have one thing that changes
0: yeah very good point i'm thinking of uh wpf mvvm uh that in that kind of scenario you have a view model that is by definition multi uh responsibility that is
2: by definition a, a massive sort of break from single responsibility in my mind. Yeah. Because it, it kind of, yes, as you say, it often does a lot of things. It communicates with some, some web service or whatever, and it does some formatting for you and it does validation. It's definitely a break from single responsibility. And it's it's generally a break from solid, but I don't think there's any other way of doing it.
0: Well I mean, you know, the this I guess the implied way to do it is to take a view model and every single thing that it does. You build a class for and then build an interface for and implement the interface and that seems to me to be a l- real overkill
2: i completely agree so i have a a pretty long background in, in mvvm i used to be a silverlight mvp okay um and and focus a lot on the mvvm pattern and um i really love the pattern but yes it does break all of those rules but they tend to be sort of befilling its kind of single responsibility in the way that it's responsible for managing whatever goes into the view. Yeah. On the other hand, it does do a lot of things, yes. But if you start looking at what can change for you to have to change your, well, it would be changing at something in the view. So depending on how far you take the single responsibility, it's probably a break, but it's, it's, Still does one thing,
0: and um, I, I, the only difference when something changes is that you change a large view model instead of changing one little, you know, uh, ancillary class that hangs off of view model.
2: Yeah. Which, either way,
0: you're making a change, and I guess the the implication is that if you change one little class that does one little thing, you have less chance of messing up the other code in the view model
2: very true
0: yeah but but you know then again i've been programming for what 20 30 years and i just don't do that
2: (laughs) (laughs) me neither and it's you come back to the pragmatic thing if if you build your view models and start breaking them into smaller bits and pieces it becomes a hassle to maintain that piece of software so to me it's just a matter of biting the bullet i will still break down my view models into like smaller pieces and have some composition going on if it becomes really big and complicated so i'll break it down into parts of the ui and and maybe even use in wpf something with like prism and and um, multiple view models and uh messaging and things like that to actually get it as single responsibility as possible but once again i'm i'm probably over pragmatic in just i'll do a view model if it becomes tedious to maintain it in the future i'll break it apart later on
0: okay and here's another here's another thought do you think that um these well the single responsibility principle uh, probably helps more when you have a dynamic language where you're uh you're less uh dependent on the compiler to tell you what's wrong and more dependent on tests
2: yes i think so I I actually I started l- reading the uh, refactoring book that it, um somebody wrote. I can uh, Martin is it Martin Fowler who wrote it? Yeah, um, yeah. It and it's it's just I couldn't even read that because so much of that refactoring book is about how to make refactoring safe and all of that. But with C sharp, the compiler will tell us when things are broken. Right. In in so many cases, so it makes it a lot simpler. Which yeah, as you say in. Making changes in, in view models and making changes in classes, the compiler will actually tell us a lot of the, the errors we could normally go into if we didn't have the compiler telling us. It. So doing JavaScript, for example, would be a bit different.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I wouldn't. <laughs> oh, I could say something funny here, but I won't. <laughs> Don't make fun of JavaScript. JavaScript's your friend. I love JavaScript, and I love JavaScript programmers, all of them.
2: <laughs> um I've actually moved away and I do typescript as much as I can.
0: Interesting.
1: M- make it, it more C# like?
2: Yeah. It's just it makes it a bit more structured. I actually enjoy having Visual Studio being able to tell me and give me proper intelligence, not the the crappy I'll just show you whatever I can figure out that has ever been called in your any javascript file in your entire entire solution. With TypeScript, I do get IntelliSense. It just makes everything easier. I get to statically type stuff, which gives me compiler warnings when I do mistakes. It just adds some form of sort of rigidity and and I don't know structure to my code. It's just I tend to make less mistakes with TypeScript.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's also a mindset, right? That we we think the whole point about statically typed is let me know when I mess up my typing. Yeah, that's what I want to know. Exactly. And I like that a lot. And, and you know, it's it's a it gets back to this way of thinking that this is how I think about programming and this is what I expect my tools to support me on. If you think dynamically, then you deal with that problem in a completely different way. And I think we only get into trouble when we mix up that. In some ways, it's like you're violating the single responsibility of your tooling. It, yeah. All right. Should we move on? Talk about uh, OCP, open closed principle? Sure. So open for extension, close for modification. It seems pretty arbitrary.
2: It's it's very general and kind of hard to understand. I know that most people when I do my presentation about Solid I, I gen- generally ask the audience if they know I've heard of the SOLID principles and ninety five percent of the audience will put their hand up and then you ask if they can name the principles and then I'm then you're down to fifty percent of the audience or <laughs> maybe yeah. thirty. And then you ask can you explain Liskovs? And all hands disappear except one or two? But to be perfectly honest, Liskov is not the hardest one to explain. Open-close is much, much harder, according to me.
1: Yeah.
0: And so it begs the question, how many professional developers are actually following these principles? It doesn't seem like a lot.
2: I think they do it sort of unconsciously. So it's basically something that comes out of what you're building. But no, I, I... consciously following the solid principles properly i've met very few people who do and to be perfectly honest when i started getting interested in this and talking to people around me very few people knew all the principles and knew how they all worked and all the mm-hmm. rules involved and all of that so yeah, no yeah. i don't think most people do follow it
0: all right so the so for ocp the open closed principle as richard said uh class should be open for extension but closed for modification software not just a class, but open for extension but closed for modification. In other words, if you have a, a login method and that method now needs to change, you now have a login two method.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, that's exactly how my code looks. Login one, <laughs> login two, login three, right. super login, and another the- awesome login.
0: And now you have another problem. Which one do I call?
2: <laughs> yeah. I would potentially make it a little bit bigger than the, the, the login method and basically say, look at the class that has the login method. Yeah. Yeah. And when you need to make your change, you inherit that class and you override yeah, the login method. Yeah.
0: Of course. But, I'm being facetious. So let's, yeah. let's find, let's find a really good example where n- violating this principle would be bad.
2: Well, I think the, the, it's hard to come up with a specific case for it, but I guess the, the general idea behind the open-close principle is if you make it so that you go in and change the code, so you, you say that you want to change the login function, if you go in and modify the function and you put that into production, you might actually break something because you introduce new new bugs to it or new code. If you inherit it and make changes to it and your base class is written in the, pro- in the correct way, in the OCP way, you're not supposed to be able to make modifications in a way that you break existing things, I guess. Sure. Uh, and that's a lot easier said than done.
1: Yeah, I bet. Um, Especially when, when you just said we tend to follow these things by reflex. There's the reflex that you have. You know when you're going in to modify uh, a method that you know other people are depending on not to break it for them. Right? You much, maybe you yeah. add optional parameters, you maybe add some new functionality, but it doesn't affect the existing workflow should continue to function. Right.
2: Well, it kind of makes it interesting as well if you start looking at this and then you start looking at uh, running unit tests. Yeah. So you, you run all of these unit tests to make sure that you don't break anything. And and making sure that the code works in the way that it should, and then you can have it for regression testing if you go in and change things. If you start following the open close principle and don't modify your code, it's actually quite neat that you can more or less run your tests as you build the class. And then once the class is, within air quotes, done, and you put it into production, you can actually turn off all those tests because you should never be in there and making changes to it.
1: Right. Right. Should being the operative word.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely saying should, but yeah. if if you strictly follow open-close principle, that should be the case. And then right. whenever you need to make a change, you'll inherit that and create a new class, and then you'll add tests to that class, making sure that, that those new features work in the way that they should.
1: And, and this is one of the troubles I think we get into with OCP is a lot of us are just avoiding inheritance now because it creates in a whole other set of problems.
2: It it does. And that's also where you, you sort of look at OCP. It's like you can still you could you can make changes using dependency injection instead or dependency inversion. Yep. That's one way of adhering to OCP while still being able to modify or make changes to the implementation by sending in other dependencies that do other things. Mm. And also if you start looking at OCP, you, you've got that idea of um uh Myers versus polymorphic, where right. the Meyer version says we should have a class, and then we inherit that class when we need to make changes, which says we'll start from an implementation and we'll inherit the functionality, uh, but potentially modify the interface. Yeah. Whereas. Polymorphic, which I assume, uh, I think is more prevalent today, says we'll do an interface or an abstract base class and we'll implement and inherit or implement from that, Mm -hmm. which means that we'll bring the interface with us, but the implementation will change. So there are two different ways. And I, I rarely go with Meyer and use classes and inherit classes and all of that. Whenever I've got anything that I need to make changes to, it just seems a lot easier going with interfaces, and I guess interfaces is what most people are using today.
0: You know, it was in, it's an interesting observation that I made, that because I was among the first people that trained others on .NET. And when it came out first, I was part of a company called Deep Training, and we had a contract to go do a roadshow for Microsoft all over the country in the U.S., uh, teaching.net and, and especially even before then with, with the uh, object oriented visual basic, there was this idea that we taught OO, uh, you know, with customer objects or, or, you know, to model the real world. Like it was all about the models, right? We have. Fruit and then an orange is a fruit. So orange inherits from fruit. And, you know, the inheritance model was really played up is what I'm trying to get at. And probably because inside the dot net framework, there's a lot of inheritance. And if you're building up a framework, you know, the, you, you will have a lot more base classes and a lot of, a lot of things. But if you're building a model of your business or a model of a billing system or, uh, or, you know, a business layer, you're not necessarily going to use all of that inheritance. And it, it really comes back to bite you. And I've seen many projects and I, I did see many projects in the early 2000s just completely blow up because they over architected, uh, using OO and, uh, found out that their, their models broke down.
2: I completely agree. I think the, the OO stuff is good, but we're kind of using it in a slightly different way today than, than people used to do definitely and, and as you say the the I, I guess the classical example i've always heard is the the car and the car has doors which and and you can inherit car into sports car and all of that and to be perfectly honest as you say it doesn't really work trying to model the real world in software is not really working out according to me which is why yes you do get up less base classes and things like that
0: and i'm guilty of that i taught in my vb master class i taught object-oriented programming to um to vb programmers who hadn't done objects and that's what i used because it was an easy to understand model of how inheritance works and how collections work and all of that stuff but absolutely true it doesn't it doesn't work in the real world when well, then we get into this
1: composability approach right rather than it's the inheritance mechanism that's kind of a problem here right so why not just compose together the thing that you actually need right i think i think the mef and a bunch of other extensibility approaches which i think still works within the open closed principle
0: it doesn't that's exactly what happened richard is in you know if you listen to the early shows of dot net rocks around 2002 2003 we began to get away from inheritance and start talking about composition and encapsulation
2: yeah, I completely agree. I think that's the way it it kind of turns into being that because with all the with all the solid principles, if you start following p- them strictly and don't com- do composability or composing things and and combining objects, you end up with these massive hierarchies of of or tree structures of inheritance and it becomes really brittle and hard to work with. So basically from a self-preservation point of view, you probably end up doing composition over inheritance because you realize that inheritance is just not going to work in the long run
0: right hey uh richard yeah buddy guess what time it is i uh, must be that happy time again yeah it's time to introduce a new principle it's the zero responsibility principle <laughs> right no code at all it's a hardware problem that makes the acronym solid Solid. Nice. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. Actually, it's time to give away a experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow, whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com/superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Heinrich Edwards from Aura Sweden. Congratulations, Heinrich! Did I say oh, that
2: another Swede? That's yeah. awesome. Did I say that there right? Aura Brew. Uh, all right Uh, you won't be able to pronounce that because you're not swedish
0: no i'm part swedish but (laughs) not that part i'm also part stupid so (laughs) 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 yep so uh so uh henrik edwards just won a experience subscription and that's a big pile of awesome from developer express and if you don't know what we're talking about here go to dotnetrocks.com Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. Hey, we have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club that you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Chris, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy?
2: I would probably, this is not quite the kind of tech I work with, but I would probably go and get another quadricopter or another octacopter or hexacopter with, for um, An- aerial photography.
0: Another octacopter? How many do you have?
2: Ah, uh, it's not, I, I've got a quad, a okay. quadricopter with a, uh, for aerial photography with a gimbal thingy that films HD. Um, oh. so I do aerial photography stuff, which is really neat. Do you like it? Uh, I love it. Yeah. It's, um, it's, Almost too simple to fly it, though. I mm-hmm. I fly single rotor helicopters as well. So, oh, wow. but it was it's an interesting way to see things from a different view, and um, it's kind of it started out last year. I got one uh, to try it out and see how it works, and it, I I enjoy flying around. It's the videos I'm producing are pretty much crap, to be perfectly honest. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I'm learning, and um, the the cool thing is, even though they're crap, it's actually Kind of awesome just to see a video of your own city or whatever from 100 meters up in there.
0: Yeah. What everybody mm. does is they circle it around their house, right? You know? Or yep. your apartment or your town.
2: And
1: yeah. If you did that in my place, you'd be attacked by ravens and you'd never see your copter again. <laughs>
2: Um officially I have not done that in my town either cuz I just got a map that says it's illegal to fly in Stockholm city. Oh, so I have I have not filmed anything around here.
0: So Sweden is apparently a very uh, pacifistic country. But uh in America if you fly if you fly in your neighbor's yard they have the right to shoot it down. <laughs> apparently.
2: Yeah, I saw that. That's an interesting one, but that Isn't wouldn't it? be a problem in Sweden that it would be allowed to shoot it down because nobody has weapons to do it with anyway. So it, but they you guys can, produce
0: they can... a lot of weapons in Sweden, though, don't you? Yeah,
2: but we sell it. You don't we use them. You give
0: them to other people. It's kind of like yeah, exactly. the dry county in Kentucky that makes bourbon. Oh, <laughs> it's,
2: <like, laughs> well, it's like it's like Norwegians. They produce oil, but they give it away to everyone. They'll sell it to everyone else and drive electric cars. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: I, I think of that octocopter we saw in Belfast near the Titanic yeah, Museum. Yeah, that was great. And it was, it was a windy day, and that thing was... You could see it battling the wind itself. It wasn't the operator. It was holding steady with one of those big Canon 5Ds slung underneath it. But it was steady. It was very steady. Yeah. But, you know, I bet that was more than five grand. That thing was a beast. As They were bringing it down near us and we could see it. Yeah. It just got bigger and yeah, bigger It,
2: kind of, it was about bigger. four or
0: five feet across. When yeah.
1: I, it was a machine. Yeah.
2: They're pretty awesome. So, the one I've got is, is a bit cheaper. I think it's $2,000 or something like that. Um, yeah, they do tend to go up in price pretty rapidly when you go above the level that I've got, cause you go into the professional range and they've been really yeah. ex- expensive, but yeah, they do work really well. The one that I've got, which is a simple version of it, you basically just put it up. It's got GPS. So you just drop all the controls and it will stay pretty much still in the air. Even if you've got 10 meters per second winds.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. That, and that's amazingly, that's a very strong wind. Like it, it says a lot.
2: Yes, it does.
0: Okay, let's jump back in here. The Liskov substitution principle, or LSP. This is one that you mentioned that, you know, most people haven't heard of or whatever, but it's simple, actually. Derived classes should be perfectly substitutable for their base classes. So if D is derived from A, then D should be a substitute for A, but not necessarily the other way around. A doesn't substitute D, right?
2: Exactly. And the way you put it is just... So much simpler to understand than the specific definition that you find if you Google Liskovs, yeah. because it basically says if provable D of X that with D being this and X being that, and then you can do it's really hard to understand, but yeah. it's pretty much like you say, if you, if you inherit a class, which you'll do if you have open close principle a lot, apparently. Um, you should make sure that the class, the inherited class that you get should be, as you say, perfectly substitutable for the parent class.
0: And that seems pretty obvious to me. I mean, when I was doing a lot of inheritance and I don't anymore, but then that, that, that was the way it was. I mean, I, I wouldn't ever write a class otherwise. So how do people violate this principle typically?
2: Well, they, to be perfectly honest, there are, there are actually four rules inside of list So the list of substitution principle includes four rules. Basically, the first one is, um, or one of them is that you can, you can change the return types as long as the return type is, um, more specialized than the base class. So if you're returning a car, your inherited class can return a sports car, for example. Sure. And incoming parameters are the other way around, but that's kind of moot when it comes to a statically typed language like C sharp because it's impossible to change the signature of a type uh, when you inherit it. So we can ignore that one.
0: Again, it seems like dynamic languages have more requirements for this than, yes. uh, than uh, C-sharp does. More challenges, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or the solid principles so far, anyway, seem to help out uh, you as a, a dynamic language programmer uh, more.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And... So the next one is the one that I guess is easiest to violate. And that's adding source, what they call strengthening preconditions or weakening post conditions. Okay. So that's basically making your class have other preconditions than the base class. So all of a sudden, your, uh, a method that you're calling requires uh, certain properties to be set in a specific way. And the base class didn't have that that condition. So if you add new conditions like that and basically modify the the conditions required to do something with the class that's one that's breaking liskovs and uh also the other way around weakening things is basically saying that when you inherit it all of a sudden you change what you're allowed to do on the class so now all of a sudden you can't do this be, that you could do in the base class ah. uh and and that's quite easy to get into that point where at least adding preconditions where you all of a sudden say, so I need to modify this little thing. I'll just inherit it. I'll override this method and make sure that these variables are set in a proper way, uh, which could make sense because it, it could be a request that you, you need to add that feature, but you are actually violating list govs by making that precondition change. And it could potentially ruin perfectly working code in production when you deploy it, because they are used to being able to use your class without setting those properties, and then it kind of breaks.
1: It definitely feels like one of those things where this is something you do by reflex, but it's incredibly hard to explain.
2: Pretty much, yes.
1: Um, Because, why would you go another way, right? It only makes sense to extend this stuff.
2: Yep. And if you do open close properly, and you you make your class open for extensions, which means actually open for adding things to it and not modifying it, right. you shouldn't really run into it either.
1: Yeah. Again, that's the instinct. If I modify this, I will break things.
2: Yeah. So, so extend you, it. Yeah. Hmm. You, you kind of get used to it. As I said, if, if you've done this for a few years, you've broken things doing this, and then you yeah. figure out that I shouldn't be doing this.
1: Yeah. All you have to do is make people sad a few times, and then it becomes apparent.
2: Pretty much, yeah. You get yelled at a few times, and after a while, you learn.
0: (laughs) Feels good when you stop. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Don't do that.
0: all right so uh what are we on three or four inside list number
1: four inter- interface segregation did you cover all of the
0: sub
2: oh uh, no there's actually uh, there's the um immu- uh, history constraint which com- says that you can't make a, an immutable class mutable and the other way around
0: Inside, which Liskopf. also makes
2: sense yes yeah well that yeah, uh, okay which kind of makes sense and sure. people think that well that's pretty obvious and that can't actually happen well Actually, it's not that hard to to introduce the ability to make a mutable immutable class mutable by mm-hmm. adding other properties that affect other ones or sure. other methods and things like that. But that's the third rule. I can't actually remember the last one now. Okay. She so got the, the yeah.
0: All right. Fair enough. Okay, we'll move on. Yes. Interface segregation principle. Yes. Yes. No it's- client should be forced to implement methods which it does not use, and the contract should be broken down into thin ones.
2: And I like the way, once again, the way you put it. Because the, the, I think the definition I found was that no class should be dependent on functionality that it doesn't need. Basically the other way around. So whenever I get an interface, I shouldn't get things that I'm not supposed to be using. Uh, <laughs>
0: by the way, I'm reading my source here is uh, an overview of solid principles in C sharp from May 1st, 2013 by VNS Arun. And we will post a link to that. It's on Code Guru.
2: And yeah, I, agree. I, like, I like that one. I
0: like the way he breaks it down in English. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fairly simple. It's just basically don't put a bunch of stuff into an interface uh, and make the interface really big make smaller ones and and they're much easier to implement it's much easier to implement two methods than implementing 25 methods right uh and it it basically makes it easier to implement and it also makes it more fine-grained what you give give the the client access to yeah on the other hand i hate that argument i have to say that (laughs) I, i keep hearing the well, I don't want to give the client too much, the the code that's using this interface access to too much stuff. It might do the wrong thing. It's like, who is writing your code? Cuz at our <laughs> company, I write the code or my my colleagues write the code. We don't have little gnomes that come out at night and write code on our computers and and misuse our interfaces.
0: You know, it this, this reminds me of uh when Flash, not Flash, when the first version of Silverlight came out. And Rory Blythe, who is the co-host, then called it, it's basically a wrapper around not implemented exception. <laughs>
2: I've heard that about the uh, micro framework as well.
0: So, But I'm, I'm thinking, you know, is that what we do? Is this how we, uh, all these things that we're not implementing, throwing not implemented exceptions?
2: Well, it, it, it tends to turn into that. So in, I changed my presentation for NDC a little bit, and I actually... I added a specific slide about the ver- worst violation I've ever seen of, of ISP and mm. it's actually from Microsoft. Interesting. It is the um, membership provider. Oh, do you remember in the yeah. ASP.net two or whatever, we got the membership provider system. And if you ever wanted to produce your own membership provider, you just inherit the membership provider base class, right. and you override the methods you needed. And, I had a bunch of situations where I had a. I just wanted to offer logins. I just wanted to be able to verify a username and a password and say that the user was, uh, it, that they were okay or not.
0: But you then had to override all these other things that you weren't using.
2: Yeah, there, there are like 27 other methods that you just throw not implement exception in every single one of them, right. which is apparently fine. Yes. Um, but it, yeah, according to, because it, it won't be used but it feels really wrong to have a massive class with three implemented cl- methods and then the rest throwing not implemented exception. And it also breaks a single responsibility in the way that not only does it validate username and password, it also makes it possible to get users by ID and by username and by email. And it was possible, to, it should validate uh, password complexity and um, locking you out with too many uh, failed attempts and things like right. that. So it had all of these things in there.
0: And it also comes with a whole list of things that you can't do, which, yes. you know, just a thou shalt not is uh sometimes that works and, you know, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah, so the, the, <laughs> the obvious solution to that, if we look at ISP, would have been Let's break it down so we have one interface for authentication users. Let's have one interface for managing password uh complexity and have one interface. So you'd have all of these small interfaces and when I needed to offer the ability to log in using a custom backend I would just implement that validate user thingy and if I then wanted to offer them the ability to update the user information, which is also part of the membership provider, I would have another interface for that. It would have been a a bit of a hassle to configure it all, because it was all that web config configuration stuff, but it would have made sense.
1: Right. I still feel like this is just like, yeah, I guess as an experienced developer, this is what you would do. But it's nice to have it written out and and an argument by a bunch of very experienced folks, so that when you're talking to someone who's built some software that's violating this stuff. It's like, look, there's a consensus here that this is a mistake.
0: But I think even even further than that, when you see problems, you can trace them back to a violation of one of these principles. And uh, and therefore, you can start fixing things in the right way.
2: But you guys are uh, assuming that all that developers are smart enough to realize that. I just just had a discussion online uh, that I just I I left the discussion because it annoyed me but they started talking about Liskovs and they were talking about you know the 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 example that everyone does about Liskov is uh, a a square is not a rectangle because the square introduces preconditions about it having both the width and height being the same while a rectangle can have them differently Mm -hmm. and that's one of the the obvious examples that everyone takes when talking about Liskov, and then the discussion goes in and they start talking about that, and there's a whole bunch of developers going that, no, that's not a violation of Liskovs. So even if we have a consensus that there's one way of doing it, there's always a bunch of developers that will say, no, no, I know better.
0: Yeah, we have a problem in the real world with labeling things too, don't we? (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we get sort of hung up on that. You also get into this battle where an example simple enough to understand is usually one that didn't need to hear the principle that badly anyway. Interesting. Especially since we have, you know, getting to your rectangle square thing, we have a class, many classes in the framework called rectangle or rect, you know, and guess what? You can make all sides equal. You do not need another class to make four equal sides.
2: No, and it keep, it kind of comes back to the the OO talk we had previously. It's like we try to add all of these things from the real world into code. And as you say, a rectangle in code, if we just make it with the same side and uh, width and height, it will be a square. We don't necessarily need a specific class for it, I guess.
0: And if you did have a specific class for it, how silly would it be to use? Because yeah. it's so constrained.
2: I completely agree.
0: Yeah. All right. Shall we get into uh, dependency inversion principle? I mean, this basically inversion of control is something that we have talked about many times on the show, and it's a standard practice among software developers.
2: Yeah, it's probably my one of my favorite ones. It's it's. <laughs> I guess Ninject. I, I do for some reason go for Ninject. There there are other containers I know, but it's one of the first thing I put into most of my projects because it just makes a lot things a lot simpler and. I guess most of us have figured out that IOC containers and dependency inversion and dependency injection are great ways of, of building our software and making mm. it really flexible and, and changeable. Right. Right. Um, and and it, it's hard to explain once in a while why it's so awesome because the general one you get is, oh, it's awesome, I'll abstract away my database and I'll have ai database interface and I'll... Dep- put that into my IOC container. And then in the future, when we switch out Microsoft SQL Server for Oracle, we can just make change that little class and it will just work. That happens very rarely.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, it
2: doesn't matter at all. No, and it's but then you start looking at other things. And I, I actually have built a piece of software that made it so obvious that this was the way to go. I built a little kiosk for an application for a client in, in New Zealand. Uh, And it's a little kiosk they put on a bar, uh, and it's got a little touchscreen, it's got a camera, a webcam, a coin mech thingy to pay for things, it's got a little printer, it's got all of these hardware things that I don't have access to, I don't have a full rig at home, but using this, I have a version of all of these, like a, a driver for all of these hardware things for... Their kiosk, but then I can just go in and put in another config, and all of a sudden I have sp- uh, spoofed all of that hardware and made little mocks out of it. And I can sit around and deploy with it, play with it, and make changes to the the other parts of the software without needing all of that hardware. And I've even put all of the configuration into external XML files, so it means mm. that when the client came back and said we need another camera because Canon has stopped producing the one we used to work with. I can sit here in Stockholm and write a new implementation of the iCamera interface that works with the new camera. Right. And I can send it down to them and then say, just change this little config row in your web com- or in your application config file. And all of a sudden you can use your new, new camera and they don't need to have different builds for different camera setups and everything. It's just really easy for them to make the switch. And it wouldn't have been possible without using DI.
0: And I, I gotta tell you that one of the best explanations of IOC and why it is needed was done seven years ago on dot net rocks show 362 with James Kovacs. So if you really want to follow the logic from its, you know, initial in, inception, check that show out. It was, don't you agree, Richard? Yeah, that was a great show.
1: Yeah. And it's just amazing that it was seven years ago. I mean, We've talked about DI a lot. Yeah, it almost seems like become the norm now. I mean, seven years ago that was a pretty far out idea, Mm -hmm. but you know, making sustainable software means tolerating these kinds of changes, and just this makes it natural. Especially always like that. Especially
0: if you do any kind of testing or mocking.
1: Well, isn't that where it started? You know, started with how to make it easier to test. And then it suddenly, it's like, actually, this makes it really tolerant to change.
2: Well, it's actually quite interesting how it's slowly really making itself into Microsoft's own stuff as well. Yeah. So in MVC, it was bolted on afterwards in a, a service locator kind of fashion. And it, was, it felt almost bolted on in uh, Web API as well. But now with ASP.NET 5, uh, DI is, is in the foundation i I got even I got a little bit surprised that even when you're doing Owen when you have your startup class you can actually di interfaces into your startup class which is pretty much one of the first things that actually run in your application
0: yeah
1: yeah, yeah and I think it's just taken time for them to get you know you only get so many greenfield chances even when you're Microsoft to make fundamental decisions like we're going to incorporate DI at the base level. Like, in the first MVC, like, she says at 2007, 2008? Even yeah. then, that was still, you know, relatively innovative in the space. So, I mean, I can't really blame them. I'm glad they've incorporated now. It's just, hey, it's 2015, and finally it's at the base level.
2: I, I completely agree. But once you also realize that it, it adds a whole bunch of complexity. It does.
1: You know, that's the truth especially someone just trying to read the code through the first time like why are we
2: doing this yeah and also it makes it it's like i've got this problem here i, I need to debug it And it's like well actually i don't know what's going to be used for this implementation until runtime and <laughs> yeah. I, I can only figure it out by doing it and attaching my debugger and then jumping through that and also the fact i do believe that i'm not lying now but I don't think that Visual Studio supports the way of, of taking an interface and pressing F12 and actually jumping to the implementation. It just jumps to the actual interface, whereas I'm using ReSharper. I can just do Control f 12 and it will figure out what classes I've got in my solution that actually implement that interface. Because uh, that's right. one of the things as well. Once you start jumping around your code and you're using parts of the solid principles and there are like... Fifteen hundred different interfaces and abstractions, and it's like an peeling an onion trying to figure out what's going wrong. Right. You
1: and you, hopefully you have a naming convention good enough to tolerate all of that, so you have some idea what you're looking at.
2: Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but it gets complicated It does definitely get complicated, and it gets really hard to figure out what you're doing. But I do believe that that complexity is outweighed by the benefits you get from it but once again you need to kind of come back to the pragmatic approach of how far do I take this do I really need to add an extra layer of abstraction here or can I suffice without doing it uh, and things like that because it does get complicated and I do believe to be perfectly honest that ASP.NET 5 with the new the new stuff uh, will be a handful for a lot of .NET developers out there to get their head around, because it's just so different from all the stuff we've had so far.
0: So uh, tell me something. This is a new question I want to start asking people. What, without naming names, what's the biggest horror show you've ever seen in terms of uh, related to the solid principles?
2: Yeah. <laughs> um... I, sh- I haven't seen that much. I've I've unfortunately seen that some of the applications I've built trying to follow this, and then it's been passed on to someone else, and you can get the hat back, and they've completely misunderstood dependency injection and interfaces, and it's just screwed up. But I must say, from a horror story, the, the worst thing I've ever heard, I haven't actually seen the code, but it's with a client I kind of know, uh, they have a constructor with... 700 lines of code or something like that inside oh, of it
0: man. Ah, woo.
2: and that's when you sort of go um how did we get here yeah well it's it's actually it's built by someone else who's i don't think is in the company anymore but anything built by that person you you sort of go um yeah so this is built by x and y so it might be a bit complicated
0: was it a per chance a COBOL programmer
2: i don't actually know i it might have been i don't think so though okay just wondering <laughs> go to thing yeah. against po- cobalt programmers
0: no 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 it's just the sort of a uh, non-object-oriented top-down you know call uh, yeah. make a routine called do everything and uh
2: it's a typical <laughs> yeah, the, kind the of t- typical god class yeah right but re- generally they're not at, le- at least not in the constructor yeah the constructor is like the the worst place in my world to put i try not to put anything but really really simple like initialization of variables in there and then if i need to do other stuff then have an initialized method or whatever just right. don't do it in the constructor cuz initializing a new object should not take time.
0: Well, you think about it. It somebody who's first learning object oriented programming, what's the first thing they learn? Constructors. So yes. this guy obviously stopped there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one way of putting it. Hey, in. there's yeah. a
0: place to put some code. Put it there.
2: Yeah, my my application is awesome I just create this one object, I run the constructor and I'm done
0: that's right, just create it (laughs) and I'm done hey uh, Chris man, it's been great having you on the show
2: it's been great being here it's been awesome talking to you guys
0: I'm sure we'll see you again in Norway next year
2: probably, or potentially somewhere else I tend to pop up at conferences around the world I'm also going to try to get to some conferences in the US uh, in the future
0: well do that and look us up all right, and we'll see you next time, dear listener, on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. And produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. is hard.